everybody and welcome to today's podcast. Today it's my great pleasure to have with us Mark Dodds who is a fabric technologist, a textile sourcing expert and a production consultant and Mark is going to help us answer some of those questions that we all have right now regarding fabric sourcing, sustainability and all the nuances in between that many members are having problems with. Mark welcome to today's podcast. Hi there thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Most welcome. It's lo- lovely to have you here and thank you so much for sparing your time to talk with us today. So let's move into our first question, Mark. Can you give us an in- introduction to your career path and explain your role as a fabric and yeah. sourcing technician? Yep, yeah, sure. So um, it was all a bit of a, a happy accident, really. I I, um, I went to Leeds University and studied fabric, um, textile management actually the course was called. It was um, like a business course tagged on to a textile course um, oh. and at the time I was more interested in like the business aspects um, but but I, I saw it through um, and then as it is in the fashion textile industry it's, it's about who you know so um, I got a call from a friend um, who'd got a job in London at, at a supplier, um, like a garment supplier and um, I figured, okay, let's let's see what this is all about. I moved down to London and did that, and then really, I've ever since um, been been in that role or similar. So, um, basically, a fabric technologist is the person who normally sits within a garment supplier or a retailer and and deals with the quality aspect of fabrics and raw material development and testing and um, due diligence and all that kind of stuff, just to make sure that the fabrics are fit for purpose. So I did that for a few years and then um, got an opportunity with ASOS um, when they were kind of, mm-hmm. it, not starting out, but they, it was the early days of ASOS and they needed someone to help with fabric sourcing. And because I, um, I had the connections within the industry at the time, I then moved from a, a more technical role into a sourcing role, which was more kind of creative, I suppose, in the sense of sourcing fabrics for the designers and the buyers in terms of like the aesthetic, et cetera, et cetera. And um, and since then, I've I've kind of evolved more into, um, well, not really a jack of all trades, but a, I suppose a little bit more broad in in um, in what I do. So it's it's now a bit of a hybrid between the creative side of sourcing fabrics, but still the technical side of ensuring that the quality is correct, the raw materials are from the right locations. Um, mm-hmm. that the fabrics are fit for purpose and, and even more so nowadays that the fabrics are sustainably sourced and and kind of and having that that kind of aspect um, in the background because it's because sustainability is obviously becoming a lot more important um, so that's where I am right now it's all been I don't know 20 years now of of happy accidents moving from one thing to the next but um, <laughs> Org- it's, no, it's organic suited growth, me well Mark. so far <laughs> yeah. exactly organic yeah growth. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Organic learning is fantastic. It's great. Um, we'll kind of segue straight into the next question, actually. Um, do, in your view, has COVID stimulated and accelerated mm. the race within the brands to sustainable fabric sourcing? Yeah, it's it's a, a difficult question to answer, really. I think on the face of it, it the uh-huh. obvious answer is yes, because over the last year and a half, sustainability 
not just within textiles, but sustainability in general has become, it's become to the forefront of, of the political agenda. See, I, I, I suppose that's kind of driven business to kind of up the ante with, with that respect and kind of make them, you know, make talk about it more, I, I suppose, and shout about what they're doing more. But really, if, if you've been in the business for the last five to 10 years, it has been an organic growth, like you say, of, of, of kind of focusing more on sustainability. And, and in the, I think a lot of the brands and retailers really have been really serious about this probably for the last five years um, right. and, and kind of doing a lot of work in the background. I think if you remember, you know, Marks and Spencer launched their plan A, I don't know when that was, that was probably 10, t- at least 10 yeah. years ago. So, you know, the big brands have been quite serious about it for quite some time. But I think COVID really has, because it's it's brought the whole thing into the kind of pop culture almost, hasn't it? Like, you know, everyone's yeah. talking about it now, even, even people that aren't interested in sourcing, whether it's food or textiles or whatever, even even kind of those people are now hearing about it every day. And, and, be, and yeah, so I think although... I don't necessarily think it's accelerated the kind of the work that's going on necessarily, but it's certainly accelerated the conversation, you know, and, and especially the conversation within the wider world rather than specifically the, the textile business. And I think those brands as well, are, it's all, as you say, front of mind, but it's been used much more for marketing now, isn't it, than it ever was before? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, th- I think there is an element of that that there will be a lot of brands probably over the last year or so that have jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak, and, and maybe haven't mm-hmm. been doing anything or, or they have a business model that potentially that is counterproductive to the whole point of sustainability and, and kind of, and maybe those types of brands are jumping on a bandwagon in terms of, okay, well, we've got to do something now. We've got to be seen to be doing something, um, uh-huh. even if it's not necessarily inherent to our brand. Very interesting, yeah. It's um, things are changing so quickly. Mark, can the fashion industry switch to a circular yeah, economy, yeah. and how can brands make that first step? So, circular is really tricky within fashion. I think it, it, there's lots of elements. So, because I work in kind of supply chain, that's kind of where I'm most comfortable. So, I'm kind of downstream, and um, that side of it, really, with from a circularity point of view, is becoming quite easy and uh-huh. although it's not easy it, it, you know there, there are there are processes and and businesses out there that are that are kind of making it easy for brands so I'm talking about kind of recycling cotton back into yarn for example so that element mm-hmm. of circularity of taking either a post-consumer waste or a pre-consumer piece of cotton waste and turning it back into a viscose fiber so that's all kind of set up and past its pilot stage and you know they're kind of commercially trading those those businesses that do that so that there's kind of the, the the downstream side of it is kind of set up and working quite well but the problem with full circularity is that you've got to be taking that post-consumer waste and getting it back into the supply chain and, and really that depends entirely on consumer behavior um yeah. You know, a brand doesn't really have control of what what their customer does with the garment when it, when it reaches its end of life. You know, we can influence what the customer does with that garment. 
um, through incentive schemes or marketing or whatever it might be, but we don't have control of that and we can't force a customer to give us that garment back or take it to the right reprocessor or wherever. So although I think I think theoretically the fashion industry can switch to fully circular, um, it really that that kind of key aspect of that is the consumer behavior and and as a brand we can do as much as possible to influence that behavior but but really i think f- for the fashion business and any other business to become fully circular we need the help of um, government and legislation to, to to force that kind of final piece of the jigsaw um I think if you if you think about the plastic bag situation in supermarkets, you know that five p levy made such a huge impact on consumer Good, yeah. behavior. Even though it's it's no money to someone if they're doing a weekly shop, what's five p on your on your fifty pound weekly shop? It's it's nothing. But but that five p actually made such a huge difference. And it's those kind of pieces of legislation I think that that would really need to be introduced to to kind of close that loop. And I think once we've got that circular once we've got that kind of post-consumer piece sorted the rest of it kind of falls into place yeah i agree with you and i guess that regulation has to flow all the way through the supply chain doesn't it right from the very beginning all the way through with transparency i guess yeah it 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 would do yeah i mean there's there's so many pieces of the of the supply chain in textiles you know there's so many people in the chain and um, a lot, of, a lot of, a lot of brands and companies are buying fabrics, for example, from wholesalers and traders because that's the only way they can procure what they need in terms of, you know, the minimum quantities or the price they need or, mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. And so, you know, when you're buying it from a, a wholesaler, you don't necessarily have visibility of where the fabric's coming from. And sometimes the wholesaler might not even know. You know, they might have bought it from someone, another wholesaler in the Far East, for example, that have then had it made in a mill somewhere else so it's so convoluted that that with the best will in the world sometimes you can't get that visibility um and if you do want full circularity you do need to be able to see every step in that in that journey because otherwise how do you prove that well to yourself and to your customers how do you prove that the the fabric you're selling or the garment you're selling is a circular product you know and I think the the kind of the buzz the buzz line I quite often use with, um, yeah, the buzz line I quite often use with with the whole circular thing in fashion is, you know, we need to make less stuff. You know, there's um, there's a lot of emphasis on circularity and sustainable fabrics and sourcing recycled polyester and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, the problem in fashion is we make too much stuff, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we're chasing trends and stuff, you know, if you're chasing a, a fleeting trend, if that's your business model, then, then, then why are you kind of shouting about the fact that your fabrics are made sustainably when you know full well that that garment's going to live for a, a month or two and then, and then die <laughs> and, and do an yeah, undignified death the, yeah. somewhere? You're feeding the problem, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mark, exactly. Just, I, I think, like, you know, I. Oh, I was going to say you're, you're kind of when you say you're feeding the beast, you know this the, these the fast fashion kind of the world. Although it's circular, you're still always going to be feeding in virgin material at the beginning to kind of prop mm-hmm. up your business model. So that circular model, if you, if you do get to that point ever, it's almost going to be like a a rolling snowball. <laughs> you know this 
this it circular is, yeah. business is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because you're going to be constantly feeding it um, with raw material ultimately because every business wants to grow. And, um, you know, the idea, if you want to be fully, truly circular, I suppose what that suggests is that the, the raw material that you have within your business is all, it's always the same. You know, it, it doesn't diminish, it doesn't grow. It it stays the same because it's going round in a loop and being recycled, et cetera, et cetera. And if, if you're thinking about it in that sense, that's not a growth model, is it? Because you, it's, you're, you're using a static amount of product um, and just re reconstituting it. So in order for businesses to grow, which they need to do, they're always going to be needing to feed off some form of virgin raw material. So I guess in the, the long-winded answer to your question is, yes, fashion could become circular, but, you know, theoretically it can, but will there be a, a desire to become truly circular when, when the fashion brands will want that growth every season, every year um, yeah. to survive? Yes, it is. It's a, it's a big ask, isn't it? Mark, just, just nipping back into one of your answers there, um, with regards to regulation, how how fast do you think that will come through? Are we looking at like a a three, five, ten year objective here? How think you, how fast do you think the world will actually? You know, if you look at what's happening with the G seven, etc. What's the appetite for regulation? I think it's quite strong. Like I don't I don't have the kind of insight into what is actually going on from that point of view. But but being within the industry and hearing people talking and and stuff i i've got a feeling that there is legislation coming in the next five years maybe that's kind yeah. of my hunch um uh-huh. that would directly affect the textile business and whether that's about landfill or the raw material sourcing part of it or carbon reporting i, I don't know i could don't know the detail but i i think within the next five years fashion businesses and probably many other businesses will be um, forced to do certain things to reduce their footprint, so to speak. Yeah, it's expected. And, and I, what I do know is there's, there's people within the fashion industry that, yeah, and, and there, there is a collaborative kind of piece of work going on. You know, I do know people that are on various groups that are talking to the government to shape this legislation. So, yeah, there is work going on behind the scenes and how quickly that, that kind of comes to fruition i'm not sure but i I think about five years okay okay mark next question are the mills and fiber companies keeping up with the demand for sustainable textiles i think not (laughs) um (laughs) i think a year ago i would have said yes um Uh because (laughs) even a year ago it was you know, a lot of these sustainable fibres could be could be considered niche because they were a little bit more expensive or um, they were focused in certain parts of the world that the mass market wasn't sourcing from, for example. But over the last year, and I, I don't know if this is about sustainable fibres in specifically, but there have been lots of supply issues over the last year um, for fibres generally, and the prices have gone crazy, you know, and it hasn't necessarily been a COVID thing. It's it's been more a probably a an uneven demand thing where COVID has caused the Western world to close down, so demand has fallen through the floor, and then fibres have been well, the fibre prices have 
gone down a lot as a result because the demand has gone down. And then when the West started opening up again, the demand went through the roof and the prices went through the roof. Um, and as a result, we've seen crazy fluctuations in price and also um, availability of different fibre types. And then um, there has been an issue with organic cotton and um, FSC viscose, which is a, a sustainable form of viscose. Um, I use this term sustainable a little bit loosely there because um, viscose is quite um, a difficult fibre to make. Um, mm-hmm. But what, when we talk about FSC viscose, what that means is it's it's sourced from renewably um, managed forests. So you're not deforesting and, and stuff like that. So in the viscose spectrum, FSC is a better version of you know your regular viscose and there has been an issue over the last year with with um availability of that and, and the organic cotton and i think that's probably down to um these fluctuations in prices and and the kind of the fluctuation in demand caused by covid so although mm-hmm. there was probably enough of that fiber available to satisfy the market over the course of a year let's say because the demand fluctuated so much i think that's what caused the problems because the the suppliers couldn't actually manage that kind of flow of material into the market to match the the crazy fluctuations in demand that that covid caused um i do also have a question over you know i have my own internal question over recycled polyester because that's marketed as a product that is made from plastic bottles um and a lot of the brands that use it market it in the sense of, you know, this garment uses 20 bottles and um, there's some people using bottles as a logo, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all great marketing, but it, just just my insight alone into the, the amount of millions of plastic bottles that I've been involved with um, mm-hmm. turning back into fabric, I can't actually believe there's enough plastic bottles in the world to to make all this fabric. So I do, I do have right. a bit of a question over when you say, are they keeping up with demand? I think with the recycled polyester, the answer is yes, because whenever you place an order for recycled polyester, it's there. Um, yeah. and, it, and it has the certificates to prove where it comes from, etc. But I do question where those bottles came from in the first place, you know, <laughs> because scary an, a natural business to keep up with demand, they... Yeah, that you know, if 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 there's a company supplying bottles and the demand increases for bottles, they make more bottles. But with yeah. with the recycled polyester thing, you can't make more bottles. You need to find them or gather them. Yeah, and um, that isn't something that's that easy. You know, if if those bottles aren't there, then where is this recycled poly coming from? And I I do sometimes feel a bit dubious about about that side of it when you when you consider how convoluted the supply chains are and you know, even with a certification system it, that that proves your fabric is from a bottle, there's there's not necessarily any proof to show you where that bottle came from. You know, was it right. gathered as waste or was it made specifically to be recycled? If you get where I'm it coming from. Right, yeah, <laughs> you know exactly get where you're coming from. Here comes the whole transparency issue again. And trace, trace not transparency, I guess it's more traceability, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And fine-tuning it. Um, yeah. It's interesting because we have, we have the technologies to be able to do it, don't we? The traceability, we do, yeah. I mean, if, if we're talking recycled poly still, I and mean, 
there is a very robust system of traceability in place and and the big brands use it um and it and it works you know you can you can get the certificates that prove that your fabric has been made from um, polyester chips that came from plastic bottles um and you can verify all of that right down the supply chain and that's actually quite easy to do um i think for me the gap comes with where those bottles were procured um and that's where it's hard i think you know collecting waste is is globally is is extremely fragmented you know there's all sorts of companies and in some countries the waste maybe is even collected by the public the general public you know and then sold as a commodity so how do you trace that part i think i would i would almost say that that section of it is impossible um because these plastic bottles are coming from all over the place you know in in europe there's systems where you know the public give them over into banks that are located in supermarkets and but you don't know where the public got those bottles from and and in asia there's there's more of a ad hoc system where people just collect waste from the streetness particularly and and, yeah, exactly. and sort it themselves and then they'll sell the, the bottles or whatever it is to yeah. to a trader so it's that part of it that i that I, i'm not sure that part of the loop would ever get closed yeah it's an underground market isn't it very hard very hard yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Great insights there, Mark. Thank you so so much. That's, that's brilliant, Mark. This is a big question for you. Um, what, which is the most sustainable base fibre? Is it cotton or polyester? Well, it's interesting you asked me this because I was just doing some work on this yesterday, um, and I mm-hmm. wasn't I wasn't comparing cotton with polyester, but I was comparing cotton with other cellulosic fibres just to see how they all sit um and the the short answer is cotton is more sustainable than polyester um but there's never an easy answer in textiles so i mean i I would i would justify that answer in the sense of um if you if you measure cotton and polyester in on an impact from an impact point of view um cotton scores highly um because it's a natural product um, it's not using virgin resources, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, whereas polyester is using a finite resource; it's using oil, um, yes. and it's it's got a lot of chemical processing to get it to the point where it's a fibre. So, in in that kind of simplistic way, cotton could be seen as the more sustainable base fibre. But um, if you look at it in a broader picture, you know, cotton is a huge user of land and water and potentially pesticides, depending on how it's farmed. And if, if you took globally the kind of cotton production globally and, and how many millions of tonnes that is and how much land that uses, then there might be an argument to say that polyester actually is more sustainable um, because the production of polyester is focused in a smaller number of big, efficient factories that are churning out millions of tonnes of polyester fibre mm-hmm. rather than it being millions of acres of land, for example. Um, and I think with polyester, there's there's so much going on right now with um, changing the chemical composition of polyester to make it sustainable that there might be, a, even within the next five years, let's say, that polyester that we know, as we know it, um, will have changed and it won't actually be made from oil anymore. It'll be made from some kind of bio-based polymer. So you can get polyester now that's um, made from soybean or cornstarch. 
and that's becoming a lot more common. And I think what once the industry gets to the point where it's more efficient to make it in that sense than it is to make it from oil, then when you're looking at that impact kind of graph, poly versus uh-huh. cotton, you might find that a bio-based poly, for argument's sake, is is now more sustainable than cotton because it's using less light, less land or less water, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an ever-moving feast. But right now, cotton is definitely seen as the more sustainable fibre of the two. But within the next five to ten years, it might have completely turned on its head just because of the way the, the industry is moving. So much innovation. Um, I would also say there's lots of different types of cotton as well. And yeah, and, and the same is happening with cotton, you know, that if if you took organic cotton, that that is really sustainable and that's almost one of the most sustainable fibers. Um, but if you compare that to conventional cotton, there's 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 a huge difference just between those two, let alone between a cotton and a polyester. So even within a a single fiber type, um, there's quite a large um range of sustainability if if you know what i mean so you know yeah. it's it's not it's not a simple question to answer um and and the answer tomorrow might be different <laughs> <laughs> mark are you seeing new innovations in the way cotton is grown yes um very much so the whole organic thing that's been going on for you know years everyone knows organic cotton but that's becoming a lot more um popular within the marketplace and prices are coming down so although organic cotton i wouldn't say that's an innovation anymore because it's it's kind of old hat but um the innovation i suppose within that space is that it's becoming uh, more mainstream um mm-hmm. but there's plenty of other stuff going on with cotton you know there's hydroponics which is um growing cotton not in a field so growing it in a lab um, which could potentially be scaled up to a factory, for example, um, where the cotton doesn't require um, natural sunlight. It doesn't require um, lots of irrigation. So there's that that side of things. That's quite early days, but there is stuff going on there. Um, there's also GMO. So GMO is a, a dirty word because there's fears around it and, and stuff like that. But there is an argument to kind of say that GMO could be good for the textile business because if you can if you can make a cotton that requires less water and doesn't require pesticides then it certainly makes um, that ethical argument of using land for fashion a lot easier to argue mm-hmm. um, when when really we we probably should be using land for food so you know, although although GMO might not take off in the world of food, it, it could be a thing that takes off in the world of textiles because if you can grow cotton more efficiently um, and not take that land away from food use or from rainforests or whatever else it could be used for, then that all of that all of a sudden that makes um, your kind of ethical argument a lot stronger because you've got this lovely natural fibre that's. Um, got all of those cotton qualities that we like but it's not using all of the land and all of the water and and all of the pesticides and all of that which which it traditionally would have been using 10 years ago so i do think there's an argument for gmo within um products for for textiles you know if we're not consuming them then those fears should be allayed a bit and 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 fashion you know we can see it as a frivolous use of resource really so if we can kind of lower that impact um, and continue to be able to make clothes, then that's a good thing. 
so much going on, isn't there? It's incredible. Oh, so many innovations everywhere. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mark, could you could yeah. you give our listeners some advice then? If if our listeners are looking to source a responsibly, looking for um, responsible cotton or, or polyester, yeah. what should they look out for, Mark? What advice would you give them? There's so much to look out for, but my, my main thing would be um, know your supply base in capital letters. Um, I think mm-hmm. if, if you're sourcing textile products, you, you've got to know your supply base. And it's not a case of just knowing the agent in London that shows you the fabric swatches at um, Premier Vision, for example. It's about mm-hmm. knowing the mill that, that made that product, um, knowing where they dye that product, asking the questions where they bought the yarn from. You know, there's, there's so many pieces of the chain that, that the kind of typical designer, let's say, working in a brand might not be aware of that there's a lot of pitfalls, you know, with, with the whole responsible sourcing thing. And you can ask for a certificate, but if you don't know your supply base and where every part of it is coming from, then how really do you know that that certificate is... Uh, correct you know I mean I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. saying that it would be a fake certificate necessarily but how do you know it's for your actual piece of fabric that you bought and not for another piece yes. of fabric that was sold the day before or or part of yeah. a bigger order that that was that had that certificate you know so th- there are certificates and and it's fine to ask for those and y- you should because that's the process um, to prove that the product is is recycled or sustainably sourced or whatever it is. But but you should really you should also know your supply base and ask those questions because if if you're just buying it from a from a trader in in Europe or London and you don't know where it's coming from, then I mean, first of all, you you like I say, you you wouldn't necessarily be able to trust that what you're buying is what you think. But also, if you really want to responsibly source something, then you as a buyer need to be responsible and ask mm-hmm. and ask those questions and, and kind of be interested um, rather than just demanding that I need a recycled product and I need it for $3 a metre and I need it to be X colour and I need it delivered on this date, you know, which are the normal questions that are normally yeah. asked and kind of that that's all, that's all a lot of the buying industry cares about because the answer to those questions gets their product delivered on time and at the price they want, so fair enough. But if, if you want it responsibly sourced, then you should be asking more questions than that. Do you think um, do you think buyers as well should be expecting to pay a, a premium for responsibility, for sustainable fabrics? Do you think they'll accept that? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 100%, I think we should be paying more, yeah. Um, I think the, the expectation is that... Uh, it change, it depends you know i think and it also depends with the market forces and market fluctuations um i mean for me i think we should always be paying more for sustainably sourced products because uh, there's more going into them and there's been a, a a race to the bottom within textiles in terms of pricing over the last 30 years and you can't expect those cheap prices to be maintained if we're sourcing something renewably and responsibly. So there's that argument, first of all. Um, but there's also an ethical argument as well, I think. You know, if if, if, a, if a supplier is investing money in new processes and new machinery and new sourcing routes in order to make their product sustainable, then 
why shouldn't we as buyers pay extra for that product? Um, and, and then on the third hand, I think the customer in the street who's buying the product needs to understand that they need to pay more as well. Um, uh-huh. Because, you know, a, a, ten, a £10 dress off the internet, um, although it's the norm now, um, it shouldn't be. And, and, and it isn't a true reflection of the work and the, and the materials that have gone into that product. And, you know, the customer in the street now expects those prices and that they're almost, they've almost been trained to assume that those prices are normal and, and that they're representative of the product and really they're not. And if, if you're, if you're sourcing something responsibly, we should, we should all be paying more, um, yeah. yeah, we have Another to question how. A, a short no, it's question. Great. <laughs> no, it's good. You, you have to question how on earth it can be manufactured and retailed for that price point, don't you? We all have to be responsible. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. When when you use the word responsibly sourced, that kind of switches the debate a little bit. So you know, up to now, we've been talking about sustainably sourced. So is the product sustainably produced? But when you're talking about responsibly sourced, that kind of opens up a, a load of other questions, you know, about um, who you're buying it from and, and what is their business? Who are the investors of that business? Who are the employees? Are the employees being paid enough? Is there the health and safety in the factories and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if, if you're talking all of those aspects on top of the sustainable raw materials, then... 100% we should be paying more for our fabrics and, and garments. Great answer. Thank you so much, Mark. My next question, Mark, is a difficult one, but it's one that everybody is so interested in. How close are we to numeric carbon in textiles? And can we trace and measure the carbon footprint of a fabric from fibre to retail? Can we do that now? Or how could we do that for the future yeah so this is a tricky question and it's not it's not something I've, I'm intimately familiar with but I, I know I know a kind of I can give a, a kind of broad answer and and the, and the answer is we can measure um, carbon of fabric so um, there are various tools available online that that do give you the carbon footprint of fabrics and and they can give you um, the water footprint for example um, and the chemical footprint as well I think um, one of the one of the best ones is the HIG platform, so it's H I G G, and they actually have an amazing platform that that you can put, you can put basically any fibre blend into there, and it will and it will churn out at the end the carbon footprint of that fabric, um, and they base it all on averages. You know the average land use of cotton and the average chemical use of processing cotton, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it gives you a very good way of benchmarking fibres against one another. Um, and that goes up to the point at which it reaches the customer, I believe. So they measure the they measure the impact of that fabric or garment up to the point where the customer has bought it. Um, because after that stage, it's very hard to measure the behaviour of the customer and how many times they wash it and how long how long they'll wear it for, etc., etc., etc. So I think when, you, you know, in your question, course, you yeah. said, can you measure the carbon footprint of a fabric from fibre to retail? I think, yes, the answer is yes. And there are, there are platforms out there that do that. Um, but but retail, beyond retail, that's the tricky part. 
and I think it goes back to the question earlier about how do we influence and control the consumer behavior because without that element you won't really be able to measure the kind of post sale aspect of the impact of your products great answer great answer mark thank you that's, that's really interesting next question greenwashing mm. um a big issue i think at the moment what's the best way to check the facts um and you which other indexes or resources do you recommend for people to avoid greenwashing well yeah greenwashing is really hard because i think i mean there are, there are obvious ways that that brands greenwash and you know we can call them out on that um but there's also you know you can you can greenwash as a brand without really even realizing it um because you could be doing all the right things but um there might be certain mm-hmm. aspects that you just haven't necessarily thought of for example um the, the i go back to the hig platform again i think for me that seems to be one of the best ones where you can actually you can get figures to back up your claims but it's very much um, around the raw material and production part of the process. So you can benchmark cotton against polyester and you can show if you've improved, you know, moving from cotton to organic cotton, for example, you can show the figures to back up your decision on that. Um, but the, but there's, there's an inherent greenwashing, I always think, within the fashion business as a whole. And, and that's down to the price we, we sell our garments for. And, and the chasing of trends, um, you know, most fashion businesses are based around designing the latest trend and making sure they're first to market with that trend. But the, the whole kind of basis of that business model suggests that a year from now that trend has moved on. And so the garments that were designed around that trend are no longer fashionable. And, and so people don't want them anymore. So again, it goes back to my point earlier, you know, you can you could do all the right things in the sense of sourcing sustainable raw materials and using ethical factories and all of that. But if you're designing clothes that only have a lifespan of six months, um, that's greenwashing in itself. You know, um, you know, you're know, you advertising the fact you've got sustainable materials, but, yes, but you're designing a garment that you don't intend to sell again in six months' time or even three months' time or some, some cases even three weeks' time. So how how do you get around that aspect of greenwashing i think that's that's a cultural change um rather than anything we can measure with with indexes um etc but but going back to like trying to do the right thing you know the hig index is great um rap is also a really good resource so rap is the waste and resources action program and they've been going for quite a number of years now and they they encompass all different things, no, not just textiles. That they're an, they're an overarching um, charity that deals with waste and sustainability and, and efficient use of resources. And they launched um, the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan in twenty ten, I think, originally. Um, and loads of brands signed on to that and made commitments to reduce their carbon waste and water impacts over ten years. And um, RAP just launched SCAP kind of 2.0 in the last couple of months, which is a new declaration that takes them up to 2030 with new targets. And and their website's really great. They they have a tool which it's not um, available publicly, but if you are a brand that's signed on to their um, commitment, they have a tool that measures your carbon waste and water 
uh, impacts and it and it's based quite heavily around raw materials so the the rap website's a really good place to go for general information um i think as as a kind of layperson you, you couldn't kind of input any data into that and get stuff that's specific to you but it's it's a great kind of resource from a learning point of view um if you want to kind of input your own data then the hig platform is really good they have a free um a free kind of test service where you can do five products i think so that's a really great way where you can benchmark your own products against one another or you okay. could benchmark your product against competition um to see the impact and how yours might be better or worse than the competition um and the ellen MacArthur foundation as well that they, they do a lot of stuff in the fashion space so um it's worth checking their website out as well because um there won't be tools necessarily on their website but there'll be plenty of links to to other tools and resources that'll, that'll help you in, in your sourcing journey but i think with the the whole greenwashing thing it's just really important to yes yeah, it's really important to just know your supply chain like i said you know if you if you want to avoid being accused of greenwashing you really need to be able to back up all your claims and and the customers will come at you with some random questions you know if, if you're selling organic cotton and you've got the organic certificate the customers might be asking you well which organic um system are you using for example so you need to know the answer to that there's there's more than one um and you, and you need to know the answer and they might ask you is it organically grown or is it also organically approved chemicals and there's a, there's again there's a difference between those two uh, those two aspects and you need to know the answer to, to that as well you know if you, you need to really know no intimate details about what you're buying if you want to avoid being accused of greenwashing um and that goes back to knowing your supply chain and and like your your phrase responsibly sourcing you know if you want to truly responsibly source you you really need to know everyone that's that's making your product really or at least every company that's making your product it's interesting isn't it because in the past you know we all have bought from our wholesalers and suppliers with great trust but i think Moving forward, we need more people like yourself, Mark, in this industry, don't we? We need more fabric technologists and we need, yeah, we just need to get so much sharper about what we're doing here. There's a whole, it's interesting really how the skill sets within our industry are changing and evolving, yeah. isn't it? It's Yeah, it's hard. Like fab, fabric technologists now in this country, we're, we're a bit of a it rare is. breed. I think I would like to think I probably know them all, if I'm honest. <laughs> I, at least, yeah. I at least know all the ones that work in London and there's not there's not that yeah there's not there's not that many of us and and you see them in paris well before covid you used to see them see them all in paris and have dinner and stuff and you know we are a rare breed and it seems like it's a bit of a dying breed because you know all the production went off to the far east and europe um there's not many textile producers left in the uk anymore so it kind of that skill set kind of dried up a bit but but i think like you say the it is coming back and it's coming back more in a kind of compliance perspective. So fabric technologists in the UK, at least nowadays, we're less about developing yarns and raw materials and doing that kind of sciencey bit of fabrics, because that's generally taken care of by the experts in the mills. Um, But we are being recruited to do that whole compliance thing. Uh Um, because first of all, the big brands want to be seen to be doing the right thing and, and need to be able to back up their claims, but also probably as well because there is this legislation coming and 
There's already loads of legislation around chemical compliance and making sure that fabrics don't contain certain chemicals. And that's not about necessarily about the chemicals in a garment causing a rash, for example, although that is an aspect of it. But actually, the whole chemical compliance thing is more concerned with were any chemicals used in the factory, where, whether it's in China or Italy or wherever, um, that could have harmed the workers. And, and that's what the big focus with the chemical compliance side is. It's, it's not yeah. necessarily about will the chemicals harm the end user. It's about did the chemicals harm the people making it? And so there is a responsibility now legally for um, brands in the UK and Europe to be accountable for any damage they might be doing um, indirectly through a supplier in China or India or wherever it might be. And then um, they need technologists to check all that out. Um, it's it's a really boring job and I don't think anyone else would do it. I think only only technologists are that way inclined <laughs> you, <you> would... <laughs> it doesn't sound boring at all <laughs> it's interesting it's interesting when you kind of think about it and and you know i suppose if you if you're out there in the factories kind of talking to them it, it that that aspect is interesting but if you're just gathering certificates quite often it isn't that interesting and but it's it's obviously really important and you need to understand what you're gathering um you couldn't necessarily just have an admin person, for example, gathering certificates for this kind of yes. stuff because you need to be able to check check them and make sure that they, they are what they say they are and that requires an element of experience that that technologists have. Fantastic. I, I really look forward to seeing more clones of yourself, Mark, <laughs> where our industry needs you. It really, really does. Mark, I'm really con- conscious of your time and I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Um the last question we have touched on, actually, but I'm just going to ask you in a slightly different way. If you had a wish list, what would the fibres of the future look like and what innovations would you like to see? Well, for me, I think I'm kind of, my heart's in menswear. Obviously, it's what I wear and, and it's it's what I originally trained in. So kind of that's where my kind of passion lies, I guess. And the reason I kind of split men's menswear and ladies wear out is because the fabrics they use are very different and the fibres they use are very different. And menswear tends to use natural fibres more than women's wear. Um, I'm not really sure why that is. It's probably a it's mm-hmm. it's a comfort and drape kind of thing, I suppose. They, they're just suited more to menswear natural fibres. But as a result, I'm a bit of a champion for natural fibres. And, I, you know, I like nature's over millions of years has evolved these fibres to be the best at what they do. And, and as a result, those fibres make great clothes. And then um, if we can get those natural fibres to the point where they are sustainably uh-huh. grown and, and kind of benefiting the environment rather than taking away from it, that's that's the ultimate goal, I think. And if, if you talk about organic cotton, for example, that that's a low-impact fibre, which is amazing because you've got your cotton fibre, which... I love and most people love but but you know it's been grown responsibly and it's not damaging the soil and it's not using too much water etc but if you take that to the next step where I mentioned hydroponics earlier if you can grow cotton in indoors in a factory and you can grow it in a in a, in a on an industrial scale yeah. um, then you've got to the point where you're manufacturing rather than growing natural fibers um, I suppose that's the holy grail, isn't it? Um, if you if you look at like viscose and tensile and and those 
yeah, if you, if you take those kind of cellulosic fibers, we call them, um, which are made from natural materials, so wood pulp or um, cotton or linen or whatever it is, and, and it's been turned into lyocell in a factory, that that's actually an extremely efficient way of producing fiber because you're you're producing fiber on, on an industrial scale in a factory rather than growing that fiber and harvesting it and processing it and all of that stuff that goes on. So if you, if you could do that with a, a true natural fiber, um, I think that would be that would be a, a major game changer. And I think I go I guess I go back to GMO because I, I I don't know about GMO, you know the science of it, but I can imagine if you want to kind of grow cotton in a factory setting in an industrial setting then you might need an element of gmo in order to make that cotton survive in those conditions you know so there might be a bit of um them working hand in hand in order to get there um i think the other thing is the bio-based polyester that i spoke about earlier that because polyester is not going away it's an extremely um it's a great fiber it's it's cheap it's durable it's very versatile um but the, the problem at the moment is it's made from a resource that's going to run out fairly soon, probably within our lifetime. So it has, you know, there's a, there's a date, there's an expiry date on polyester in its current form. So it, it has to it has to change. And if, if, the, if they can get to the point where the bio-based polyesters are being produced on a mass scale and, and kind of costing the same amount of money, then that, that will be the next step. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, that would, that would be quite a large step towards a sustainable fashion industry. I think the the point with the bio-based polyester to remember is that although it's... It will, it'll be huge. It would, but it, it, you've got to remember that the bio-based polyester is using a natural product that's grown somewhere, you know, whether it's soybean or corn or whatever it is. There, there is another element to that polyester that we don't see that obviously, and that's that's the farming and how those plants were farmed so maybe if you can combine that hydroponics idea i suppose if you can nail that hydroponics idea and grow all types of plants in an industrial scale then you're kind of solving a lot of issues then because because those plants could go into cotton or linen or polyester so hydroponics (laughs) it's the buzzword today yeah yeah and become truly circular Yeah, yeah yeah It is. No, it's great. Mark, thank you so, so, so much. Um, I really look forward to, as you say, to seeing those innovations. And it's, it's, it always amazes me what's going on behind the scenes. Um, so many incredible things coming forward and people re- you know, really rethinking the past and changing things for a, um, a greener yeah, there's future. There's so much going Fantastic. on. There is so much. It's brilliant. Mark, thank you so, so much for your time today. Your insights have been incredible. Our listeners are going to absolutely love this episode. Thank you so, so much. Um, And keep up the good work. You're doing an amazing (laughs) job out there. It's fantastic. Have a great day, Mark, and speak to you very, very soon. Thank you. You too. See you. you.